In episode 138 of the Cinematologist podcast, Dario talks to director Cherish Oteka about her BAFTA-nominated short film, The Black Cop. And Dario and Neil discuss some of their latest viewings, including Petrov's Flu and The Worst Person in the World. If you enjoy the Cinematologist podcast, please share the episode on your social networks and consider joining the Patreon membership where you get access to all of our bonus episodes and our monthly newsletter. This is all for as little as £2 a month. Any support that we get comes from you, the listener. Support independent media. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the Cinematologist Podcast. I'm Neil Fox, and joining me down the line is Dario Linares. Hello again, Dario. Lovely to see you. Yeah, it's really good to see you again, uh, Neil, and good to be getting on the train of getting podcasts a little bit less slowly than uh, than previously. So um, yeah, looking forward to, to this one for sure. Yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be a really interesting one, I think, and... Um, Hopefully, yeah, people will enjoyed the Bill Douglas Cinema Museum episode and are ready for a, a very different focus, which is great, isn't it? I mean, you know, just that's one of the joys of doing it is like each episode feels very different and we're able to just go wherever the sort of the interest takes us. We're leaning into the the Mark Jenkin comment of God knows what's coming next, you know what I mean? But that, that, that's the way we like to do it, that's for sure. You know, there's loads of podcasts out there that've got, that've got their their theme. Yeah, we're, we're meanderers in the uh, audio cinematic landscape. That's a lovely tagline, isn't it? That's uh, that's definitely one to, <laughs> to to keep in mind. Yeah, yeah, that's on Twitter next. That's for sure. Yeah, but before we get to sort of the bulk of the episode, um, we've got some stuff to chat about. We've got some films that we've seen of late, and we thought we'd just have a little natter about about some other movies. One of those things that happens when your partner goes away, which mine has for, for three weeks, is suddenly you're sat there watching movie after movie and uh, yeah, I've been watching a lot of stuff recently in the last sort of week or so. But I mean, first of all, I think maybe we should talk about this film uh, Petrov's Flu because this is something that we were sent and asked to kind of review and has had a release in London. I don't think it'll turn up down in, in Cornwall. But yeah, this is this weirdly surrealistic, almost sci-fi, but then you know, kind of in a dystopian sense and, and suddenly very weirdly contextualized when you consider what's going on in the world. And yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's it's just a weird one since since watching it and now, you know, the, the war is going on. And there is, yeah, I, I don't know. I, honestly, I've, I've kind of, I almost feel like I need to go watch it again and kind of think, oh, this now suddenly is a completely different film, you know? Yeah, absolutely. As I was watching it, I was thinking, I think I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna need to see this again. It's a very, it's a weird, it's a phrase that I haven't used in a long time, but it's a trippy movie, you know. Um, I think deliberately so. Following this character on, yeah, it's like a long dark night of the soul type of story. Um, felt very James Joyce to me. Felt like Ulysses, you know, that kind of Ulysses kind of, you know, there's a very, there's a very bodily aspect to it, uh, very physical. Yeah. As, this, as you're sort of following this character through what you're never sure is reality or fever dream or just kind of all-out fantasy. Yeah, it's sort of set in a futuristic but also contemporary Russia, I think, you know, in terms of the way that the, 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 the satirical delivery of the film is definitely suggesting that this is a contemporary atmosphere, if not kind of aesthetic and yeah, for me, it felt very reminiscent. You sort of said about sci-fi of like Terry Gilliam at his best. 
Yeah, that's what I was going to say. And also kind of Orson Welles is the trial, you know, this sense of the absurd in a in a space which is both kind of very tangible and very real, but also feels alienating and alienated. Yeah, it's a it's a really strange movie. And like you say, the fact that yeah, we saw it as as the you know, the sort of Ukraine Russia conflict was was building, as it's been building for a while in terms of but pre the pre the invasion. And now to think about to think about it is yeah, it's kind of jarring and startling, I think. Yeah, I hadn't seen any of the director's previous work. So this is Kirill Serebrenikov. And yeah, I think the Terry Gillingham mixed with a kind of I mean, it's an easy, it's, it's always an easy connection when there's a Russian filmmaker to say it's Tarkovsky, but there's sort of elements of that. Nobody really knows why people are doing things. And what's really interesting is that the, the, there's certain moments of, you know, there's almost kind of like a military state of emergency on, at so, you know, at some points. And then the, the main character is put, like pulled out of the crowd and made to do things and he doesn't kind of know why and then does them and then just sort of carries on and it really it's shockingly sort of reminiscent of some of the stories you're hearing about these Russian soldiers who are in Ukraine and being captured and and or they're just going I don't know why I'm here I don't know what's going on do you know what I mean it's just like unerringly kind of similar so yeah I think I mean it's a film that probably is I don't know, you know, it's, it's, uh, we've said this before, it's like, it's not for everyone is a terrible kind of review, but it, I don't know what the audience is going to be for it. It's probably going to find it, its place in 10, 15 years by, I don't know, academics or critics who are going to go look at this film that was made at the same time as, as the war happening. And a kind of, suddenly it's going to open up a lot of conversations, but, but it's just too soon for that. You know what I mean, and even like I said, we're struggling to sort of make make sense of it because it's a difficult it's a difficult watch. That's why I felt like I really wanted to go to the cinema to see it, but I mi- I missed that. And we watched it at screeners, and you really you can't watch it with that sense of oh, causally and narratively, this is going to connect to this, to this, to this. It is a it is a fever dream. It's a it's a hallucination, which is like the main what the main character ends up having. You know. Yeah, yeah. And what I, I saw the director's last film, Leto. Um, which was about, well, Russian punk music in the 70s under under communism, Soviet punk, although it's not really punk as we know it, but, you know, almost, almost Woodstocky folk rock, but, but certainly had that kind of was punk in the sense of, sort of anti-establishment, sort of illegal, essentially. Um, and what was interesting about that was that he likes to take these digressions, you know, so he likes to kind of pick up on a character in a scene and then follow that character. And I think it works really well in Petrov's Flu where you spend time seeing seeing events from multiple perspectives, which doesn't actually bring any coherence. It actually adds confusion <laughs> and and a bit of chaos. Um, but but certainly it feels like that that's, that's his sort of filmmaking approach is to take take the story off the main narrative path to try and give a kind of sense of the complexity of, of all the different lives. And then his wife is such an interesting character in terms of what she's doing or, or not doing throughout the film in relation to their child and just in general with her job. There's an amazing scene, um, a book read, a poetry reading where she sort of becomes a vigilante just out of nowhere, you know. And But yeah, there's, there's always the the, sort of the sense in the back of your head of like, what am, uh, is this real and, and how does this connect to anything? It's, yeah, I think intentionally dense. And what is a shame, I think, as well, is that there is, because obviously it's a, you know, Russian film and however critical it is of Russia, I think it's going to, 
it's going to take a while for people to come back around to it, either for a kind of, you know, yeah, like a, a distance from anything Russian that's, you know, this is certainly a backlash against Russian culture and uh, ha- happening presently. So I, I wonder when, what it'll look like, yeah, in, in 10 years' time. But uh, yeah, certainly a, a visually stunning and kind of really confident confident mess. And I mean that as a compliment, I think. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and it's a, uh, available to stream. So, if, you know, if our description of it kind of floats your boat, then uh, then go check it out. Yeah, a couple of other things that I've seen um, as Q&As. So down at the uh, Curzon Soho, which is uh, a place I kind of go regularly now. Uh, it's just a bit of a bus ride away. And yeah, I saw both The Worst Person in the World, which is Joachim Trier's latest film. And I really liked his Thelma, but I haven't seen the other two films that are the beginnings of this trilogy. So this is the third in a in a, in a trilogy of his. And then I also saw Paris 13th District by Jack Odiard, who is a, a filmmaker whose films I've really liked and then was really disappointed by the Sisters Brothers. Maybe I need to we need to revisit that, Neil, because uh, well, I loved it. The more I think about it, the more I think I was in a terrible screening. I agree. I loved it. That was one of our rare, our rare disagreements. Um, so yeah, if if, it's, if this sends you back, I'll be I'll be more than happy. Yeah, I mean, I do love um, a profit, and Rustin Bone I think was really really good as well. And it, it, yeah, it was interesting because obviously this, these are both sort of romantic comedies to to a to a some degree, but then particularly the worst person in the world definitely has its darker elements towards the end and, and notions of tragedy and. The the central performance by Renata Rienzva is very is very good as as this kind of in, indecisive twenty something who's trying to kind of figure out what's going on with her life in terms of career and in terms of relationships and at times there's something of the flea bag about it you know but it's a, that's sort of damning it with faint praise although I quite like flea bag but do you know what I mean just to sort of you know p- place it in that box I think is 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 not quite fair but. Yeah, Rienzifer plays this character, Julie, who's kind of, like I say, sort of stumbling through her life. And it's, the film's really good on how we sort of define things to connect with, whether it's other people or situations in our lives and just sort of say, oh, this is right for me until it's not. You know what I mean? When suddenly things look very different. And the, the, the elements that turn us onto somebody often can end up being the fissures which make us doubt whether that person is is for us and and very much sort of bring brings brings to the fore this idea that, that you can only really be satisfied with yourself you know to, to a certain point and i think it's interesting because there has been some there has been some criticism of the film loads of people have have, have loved it and it's you know it's got a lot of praise but there has been some sort of criticism around this fact the fact that this is a character female character who just defines herself by by her relationships with men and this kind of thing and it's somebody who is who doesn't have a sort of sense of a well-rounded sense of sub- subjective idea of a, of herself but but at the end of the day the way I looked at it was who does and at the end it kind of resolves that I think that the newmont is not a is not one that is trite or or I mean you know you could probably say it's 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 not obvious but it's not radical either but it's just kind of like yeah the, the what she what the character's gone through in her in, in the film has brought us to the point of realisation at the end. You know, I won't give it away. Um, but it's got two really great scenes in it. One of them's visual, which is sort of really sublimely executed. And it veers the film off into kind of like magical realism. 
to a certain degree. But yeah, the most powerful element is when it sort of moves into tragedy. And I think that that, that sense of the way that particularly, I think, you know, sort of straight relationships are built around expectations of, of men and women and how the kind of that, that those gender assumptions often, <laughs> you know, the thing, like I say, the things that, that you're attracted to, but then kind of break you apart. And then, yeah, Paris 13th District, I just thought was, I mean, I was really preparing for the worst because it's beautifully shot in black and white. And there's, you know, it's an adult film. There's quite a lot of sex in there. And I thought, oh no, this is just going to be, you know, a Philip, a, a sort of bad late period Philip Garrell movie where it's just going to be stunning shots of men looking at naked women kind of thing in, in a way that, 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 that is just so obviously old school. But it really isn't. It's, it's based on the relationships between four characters and it's kind of counterintuitive in terms of form and content because like I say, it's this sumptuous black and white, but it's a film that's very much about the technological mediation of identity and relationships. And it, it sort of uses that as the underpinning to look at the messiness of sexuality and desire. And it's, it's, it's funny, but really in a sort of dry and sarcastic way. And all the characters are flawed. There's, there's no sort of easy reading of, oh, here's the hero and here's the villain. And, and it's quite messy in sort of a narrative sense as well. So it's quite, it's quite new wavy, um, but in a, in a 2.0 kind of way, I think. Um, so yeah, it'd be interesting. I don't think either of them are going to end up on my sort of end of year lists or anything like that, but I enjoyed both of them. And the, the Q and A's were both interesting, particularly, I, I think particularly the, the, the Jacques Cotillard Q and A was, was because he was, <laughs> he was doing that French, I don't give a fuck <laughs> kind of thing where he's making statements that are, you know, slightly politically incorrect, but it was all good fun. But yeah, I mean, but both of them, I think, I think you, you, they'd be worth seeing for, for you, Neil, for sure. Yeah, they're, they're definitely on the list of films I, I want to check out. One film I'd like to mention based on that, the gorgeous black and white and is it kind of just a slight sort of contemporary piece of whimsy. I caught Mike Mills's Come On, Come On with Joaquin Phoenix. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I absolutely adored. I mean, it's, you know, it's it's going to tick my boxes. It's got Joaquin. It's got a score by the Desna brothers from The National. I'm not a complete Mike Mills stan, as the kids say, but I really love 20th Century Women. And this was, I just thought this was a really beautiful film. And it's a story of sort of, it's about parenting and it's about childhood and sort of, you know, sort of our relationships with with kids so obviously it kind of you know it had a very personal context for me but I just found it kind of effortlessly enjoyable it's just a sort of road movie just characters spending time with each other it's funny well cast and just really really moving but what was kind of I think the most the most striking thing was it looked beautiful um, I think there's been a lot of recent sort of talk about how how kind of visually uninteresting or uncinematic or you know how lacking in cine literacy a lot of filmmakers are you know um because spielberg you know sort of talking about spielberg you know like people might criticize spielberg and west side story or whatever but the man knows how to tell a visual story and he can, they look like films um and come on come on is is beautiful it's shot by robbie ryan who i think is one of the best cinematographers and one of the only cinematographers i'm really interested in in seeing the work and he, he just he captures something about all the places that the film is in and interior space and just it's just it's just absolutely beautiful it just feels like a movie in a way that not many indie films 
do nowadays you know but budget aside you know I don't, I don't know what the budget was it's an a24 movie but it just looks amazing and there are these cutaways of cities and obviously he just went around as he as i think he does you know finding these images to to link and it just creates a real texture in the film which is just gorgeous i just thought it was yeah you know just pleasurable on a on an on aesthetic level which was which was in addition to what a lovely film i thought it was yeah yeah interestingly enough b and i watched 20th century women again about two weeks ago that film is absolutely brilliant it is isn't it i mean it's like one of those films like did did everybody just miss this i know people rated it at the time but it's just kind of like that is superb that that film so it's interesting i've I've read a couple of things about uh about come on come on yeah and i'm interested to watch it because there's a couple of things been said when i'm thinking this is probably this might rub me up the wrong way, but I do like Mike Mills's uh, filmmaking, as I as I said. So uh, yeah, fascinating. You might be rubbed up the wrong way by Joaquin Phoenix as a podcaster. So that was. <laughs> <laughs> is that what he is? He's making an audio documentary, but I think he's making a podcast. Um, um, yeah, I see. I see. No, it might it might be the kid. Yeah, abs- I, I I was more <laughs> likely thinking it would be the kid. He's very precocious. Right. So yeah, nice, uh, nice array of movies there um, to uh, sort of catch up on, and yeah, I think it's time that we focus on the the main part of today's episode, which is uh, an episode that you've put together, Dario. So do you want to let us know uh, who you're talking to and what we're going to be discussing? Yeah, sure. In a, in a again another quite a big gear shift from the films that we've been talking about. I think um, I spoke to Cherish Otaker, who is the director of The Black Cop. And this is a BAFTA-nominated short, which is a kind of a documentary portrait, I would say, of the first openly gay black officer in the Met Police and his history. Um, and the, the subject's name is uh, Jamal G. Turawa. And Cherish has a, a substantial career in TV documentary, and we'll put links up to some of their other work which is very much interested, I think, in personal experiences of race, but often intersected with multiple layers of identity. So whether that's sexuality or Britishness or even religion. And you'll hear, you know, I ask Cherish a question about that and how much that's informed by their own personal experiences. And having watched some of their previous stuff, The Black Cop is definitely the most cinematic of the work that I've seen. And it's available on the Guardian website. So it it has got quite a lot of visibility because of that. And yeah, um, Cherish was just really open in answering questions, both on form and theme, which some filmmakers, you know, don't like to. But yeah, the reflections on defining the self through expectations and requirements of outside society or culture or one's family. These things are all fundamental to the the film and we get into that in in, in quite a bit of detail. Yeah, it's a really great interview. Um, Cherish is a really yeah interesting filmmaker uh, with a fascinating perspective on, on a lot of things. Um, certainly made me think a lot about the filmmaking that's going on. So yeah, hopefully our listeners will enjoy that. Let's listen to that now. This is Dario's interview with Cherish Otaker. We were going to the mosque in London for Eid and there were hundreds of people walking down the road and in the middle of this junction was a black police officer directing traffic.
And I remember him standing in the middle of the road and he went like that. And all the cars stopped. And I was just like, wow. And I stood there just looking at him. It was the first time I had seen a black person in a position of power. And then you'd go like that and the cars moved. And I said to my dad, that's what I want to do. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Cherish. I, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time out to, to speak to me. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. It's always kind of good to talk about the film um, in spaces like this. Great. Um, so yeah, congratulations on on the Black Cop, which is obviously the the, the main film that we're we're sort of talking about today. Although although I would like to touch on your your other work, um, which I've been watching over the, the the past few days. I was just thinking about the moment in the film when Jamal or G, who is obviously the focus, is describing when he was on his way to the mosque as a child, and he's mesmerized by this black police officer directing traffic and he sort of talks about this being a a representation of power but I I just thought it was amazing how it exemplified how G's voice and his storytelling facility really grounds the film and particularly the reconstructions that you use so I mean I just at that moment I was wondering inside as a documentary filmmaker were you thinking wow that's a great image I can really use you know yeah I mean He's got a lot of powerful testimonies throughout his journey. Um, And so it was a real job of picking the ones that made sense for the film and that were the most visual as well, because, you know, it's all um, retrospective. So my main job was to bring his story to life and make it feel um, like it's happening in present tense. And that was definitely, you know, a really pivotal story for him. But yeah, the, the real work was how do we take this story and make it feel like it's present? And and it's an incredibly visual one as well. And he's he's a really powerful storyteller and a really visual storyteller as well. Um, so it was a great collaboration between kind of his just authentic story and his ways of expressing himself. And also, yeah, the journey of trying to bring that to life visually. Yeah, so just following on from that, looking at your work as a whole, you seem to be interested in cinema's ability to be able to capture formative moments in people's lives no matter how kind of fleeting or evanescent they might be you know that sense that they're looking back and this moment even if they've remembered it just portions of it or fragments then that becomes the central kind of narrative that they sort of define what's happening in their life that looking at, at this this film and some of your other work you, you seem to be really good at kind of capturing those those moments is it that's something you think about in terms of your your filmmaking first off thank you thank you for kind of noticing that that is uh, an important thing in my filmmaking and just in life generally like I think we're shaped by so many kind of big and small moments um, and in this film in particular I was really interested in bringing to life the memories that are big and small for someone just because quite often yeah like we're we're kind of geared towards defining our journeys or defining particularly in this film for example racism and homophobia by the big moments um when someone is called the n-word or when there's like an overt um racist incident but it's also just the small moments it's the casual moments it's the moments that people call banter 
that have just as much of, as an effect of an effect. So, yeah, like I'm interested in bringing to life big and small moments um, and giving them the prominence that they deserve. Yeah, it's it's really interesting that you you say that about the casual comments that G sort of experienced throughout his life, and it seemed to me that that's those were almost psychologically more affecting to him. It's it was almost as if you know that yeah, being called the N word or you know any of the sort of homophobic comments that he suffered, it's almost like that's obvious, and I can you know there's a barrier to that in my mind. But it was like the maybe even the unintentional slights and derogatory terms and this kind of thing was the, the thing psychologically that over time you know, really affected him. Do you think that's something that's sort of still somewhat misunderstood about racism when, you you know, when we talk about it in quote unquote liberal circles, you know? Oh yeah, for sure. That is definitely like a, a part of racism that um, I wanted to shine a light on. Um, they are two sides of the same coin. And just because you say something with a smile on your face um, or you laugh about it, doesn't mean that it's not racist. Um, yeah, I, I've definitely kind of experienced that uh, as well. And I think it can be more damaging just because it's crazy making. Like you almost don't know what to do with it. And in the moment, you're left of the kind of responsibility of either saying something and being seen as, you know, someone with a chip on their shoulder or someone that's too sensitive or not saying something um, and being impacted by it and wishing that you did. So, yeah, I, I think the small moments, and I, I don't even want to refer to them as small moments because they're literally just as, as effective. Of course. But I think we just don't acknowledge it in the same way. Um, but they're just as damaging. The film definitely kind of uh, meditates on that, whether it was his foster mom making jokes or the police instructor when he started training or, you know, the four guys that painted his face white or the jokes he started telling because he kind of learned to use that as a way of kind of gaining acceptance. Um, I definitely kind of wanted to shine a light on this part of racism. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, you definitely do that throughout. And I think that it's interesting how those, I mean, again, you know, small moments is not the right phrase, but that scene where, you know, the police officers almost, I mean, it's like a torture scene in a sense. Do you know what I mean? But it, but he's, one of the interesting things was his own, his own sort of sense of ambivalence about how he reacted to that, you know, because it was almost sort of a blaming of myself. Did I go along with it? Because I, I just wanted to be one of the team, you know, I wanted to fit in and this kind of thing. And then later on, he's he's kind of like guilty for the fact that he didn't stand up to that. But it's almost like there was there's a no-win situation there, which is, you know, really profound, I think. Mm, mm. It, it, it is, and it's just, yeah, I've definitely been in situations like that, not, of course, having my face painted white, but having comments made, quote-unquote jokes made, and having to grapple with, okay, like, what do I do with this, you know? Like, it, it ends up being something that, yeah, has an impact and you're left with. And that's kind of part of the um, storytelling devices that we used in the film, um, because when these events happen, the person, nine times out of ten, just gets on with their day and it's not anything that uh, is remarkable in any way to them. Like they, if you were to bring it up the next day or the next week, or whatever, they might not even remember that it happened. But for you, like, you're left with that and it, it's left its mark and you might talk about it with friends and family. And because they weren't there, they're only experiencing it through you. So you actually adopt the voice of the person who has left this, this mark on you. Um, and so that's kind of something I wanted to do with the dramatic recon and, overlaying G's voice with the actor's voices of just how 
how these things become imprinted um, in us and, and end up being part of our stories. There was a police officer and my white friend goes running up to him and says, hello, Mr. Policeman. Starts talking to him and then he puts his hand in his pocket and he gives him a coin. And I'm like, ooh, the police are giving away money. So I go running up and I said to this police officer, I said, hello, Mr. Policeman. And he looked at me and he said, fuck, fuck off, you little black, black bastard. bastard. And I remember being hit by those words. That was the moment I realised I was black. Yeah, I, I definitely want to talk about that in, in a second. I mean, I, I think it's just, it's important maybe for the, the audience listening here, you know, to just maybe sort of think a little bit about or talk to you a little bit about how you came to know this guy and this and this story, you know, this somebody who had quite a, in some ways, quite a prominent role as a, a black police officer in in the sort of you know in, in through the eighties and in and also in that you know the period of turmoil, obviously, but then also a period right up into the nineties. You know, you think about the footage of Tony Blair and being the face of black policing, let's say, as a, a recruitment tool, a sort of poster boy. He he calls himself in in many ways. But yeah, I mean, how did you come to to this story? Um, I first heard about G and LGBT um, workshop for people of colour um, and there were breakout sessions and in one of them we were encouraged to speak about role models like people that we actually had in our lives that were older and LGBTQ plus and of colour um, and at the time I didn't have anybody so I was paying close attention to the names that other people brought up um, and G was one of those people. At the time, his story wasn't in the public domain, so I didn't know, you know, the challenging parts of his career, but I just knew that he was Britain's first openly gay and black police officer, um, and he just sounded like a really inspirational man. So I reached out more just on a personal level of making that connection with the older generation, and we just really clicked. Like, the first conversation we had, it was meant to be like a quick 30-minute call, but we ended up speaking for hours, and... Uh, somewhere along the way in that call he told me about you know some of the challenging parts of his journey and it was more just on a personal note just like explaining just what it was like for people in of his generation Um, but yeah we just really built a connection and he was really interested in sharing his story and I just knew it was a story that needed to be told so that was five years ago and it was definitely a journey towards getting, um, it was an uphill battle to getting it commissioned. So I'm, I'm, I'm so pleased and it almost feels surreal that we're having a conversation now and the film is made. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah, it's obviously um, fantastic in terms of the partnerships that, that produced the film and then it being on The Guardian and everything like that and obviously the the BAFTA nomination, which we, we can talk about, you know, in a bit. But um, yeah, it's it's such a fascinating story because it, it does touch on different social and cultural elements, but then ties them all together in this in, in this one character. Like, say, for example, I didn't really, I, I knew about it, but I didn't really have much detail about this notion of farming, you know, the West African children taken care of by families outside the local authority. And, you know, I, I knew more about, like, the, the busing in America than I did about this. So it's just so interesting how something like that that, fundamentally affected an entire generation um, of black British people is just such an unknown an an unknown phenomenon really there's there's so many um you know stories and experiences that just haven't been given the time of day and haven't been documented and aren't in public consciousness um and ultimately it comes down to of course who has the power to tell those stories and who 
decides what stories are important to tell. Yeah. Yeah, these stories really interesting. It touches on so many um, important moments in recent British history, like, yeah, of course, farming, relationship with the police, of course, um, Stephen Lawrence, the LGBTQ plus fight for equality. There's so many kind of um, big themes in there. And it was kind of a balance of giving a nod to what was actually going on in the world, but also kind of grounding it in in his subjective experience. But yeah, farming isn't something I knew about before meeting G. So there's, there's so much of like black history and history of, you know, marginalised communities that just needs need to be told, need to be shared. Yeah. Thinking about the ways in which someone like G's identity is so complex and from, you know, from an internal kind of, you know, uh, understanding of his own sexuality and then how he defines his own sense of race in relationship to the to his foster parents or, the, you know, his foster carers. Um, and then moving to London with his father is just so interesting and kind of complicated. And it, it seems like the whole film was a sort of working through of that. And one of the things that the, the prescriptions of identity in many ways for everyone it, uh, can be quite limiting. And, and, and that can be from groups who, you know, who are kind of racist and to say, you are this, you are the other. But also it can be quite narrowing from um, groups who you would consider you know, much more aligned with yourself in that in that sense. Do you know what I mean? So like G's experience moving from Kent, from the white suburban environment of his foster home to London is a key example of how sort of these discourses are socially structured. And one of the key elements is how he wanted to be, he, he you know, he sort of talks about this on, on camera, wanting to be seen as white or, or exist in a white space. And I just wonder if, if that's a sort of, unspoken narrative within black experience particularly from that generation and how brave it was to sort of say that on on camera I thought it's tremendously brave for G to say these things um and it's a testament to the real journey that he's been on and the work that he's done to be able to look at his journey and look at his past and own it 100% um but it's it's definitely something that um takes a huge amount of courage it's it's something I'd never heard a black person say before Mm, um that's interesting yeah but the self-hatred yeah the the self-hatred that comes from being told repeatedly and by loads of different people in your life who you know represent authority whether it's you know foster parents or um, trainers and or or police officers when he he was an eight-year-old child repeatedly being told that the colour of his skin is less than, mm. of course he's going to adopt. It's, it's like, how could he not? How could he not feel that way? Yeah. Um, but I just think that there's just less, um, there's less space maybe in in many ways for people to sit down and reflect on self-hatred. And it's not just, of course, a black thing. I think everyone can relate to it in so many different ways. Like you could be a white, middle-class, you know, cis, um, hetero man, and have self-hatred and, and still be told that you're supposed to be this person and, and this is what it means to be this person and anything outside of that is less than so you need to change that or hide it or do something with it but you can't be who you are. I think everyone in some way, shape or form can relate to self-hatred and being told that they're not good enough but I think we just rarely hear people own it in the way that G has um, and it's hugely inspiring. Uh, I, I think 
one of the things that have um, resonated with me or just touched me the most is hearing how people who who aren't black and who aren't queer have related to the story um, in so many different ways like that I would never have imagined. But um, that's the power of, of just speaking from the heart because people connect with that. Even if they don't connect with the lived experiences, they connect with the emotions um, that, that he's sharing. So, yeah, it's hugely yeah, and everybody soft connects, I think, like you say, with burying something deep that they don't want to admit to themselves, which is really, yeah. you know, what a lot of us do to to survive day to day, really. And yeah, yeah. and just on that, what you were, what we were discussing there in terms of the, the bravery of that, I think it's particularly brave and because it goes against the sort of discourse of, you know, like, like I'm black and I'm proud stance or I'm out and I'm proud. You know what I mean? It's like that celebration of diversity is the way that you're supposed to express that these days. But in a sense, that can be, that could be quite difficult, you know, if you're coming from a generation where the, the, there is a, a different conception of what it means to be, say, black British. I don't know if that if, if that's correct for you. But just the whole idea of like pride and, and yeah, saying you're black and proud or, or as queer people being proud of who we are, proud of the communities we come from. Um, we say that as affirmations because there's so much that tells us not to be proud of who we are. And so, yeah, because we have so much of that message in anyway, when we get to a point where it's like, do you know what? Like, I'm actually proud. I know that I've been on that journey with my um, gender identity, with my sexuality of getting to a point where it's like, okay, I've done all the self-hatred stuff and, and I'm still me and none of this stuff has actually changed. Like, I still am queer and I'm still non-binary, so what do I do with this now? And there's no way to go other than being fully um, embracing of who you are and that's where the pride comes from, but it's an extension of and it's, it's, it comes through a hard-fought battle with your identity. But, but yeah, I think there's less space for that. There, there's less um, discourse around that. For the older generation particularly, but certainly still for, for this contemporary generation as well. Sure, sure. I just wanted to talk, I'll go back a little bit to what you said about, you know, the way that his voice and his presence on screen structures the form of the of the documentary. I mean, I wonder, did you, you said that you sort of spoke to him for, a, you know, a few hours initially, but then did you straight away realise that he had a kind of strength and charisma that was compelling in a story sense, but also visually and sonically on screen, because you use that, you know, extreme close-ups um, rather than mm. than what you might consider that traditional, you know, documentary mid-shot where you're a little bit further back and it's kind of like here's the expert yeah. talking. You are much more close up to his his face, which you know fills out the screen very very clearly. And and you know we've talked about how the powerful the voice is. I think I found him just most compelling just as a friend, like just getting to know him. He, he's he's a great storyteller. He's super passionate, super, um, yeah, compassionate as well. And I wanted to tell the story and frame him uh, in a way that was an extension of our friendship. So I wanted it to feel like you're sitting across a, a dinner table and you're just talking to someone and hearing about their journey and creating that kind of level of intimacy with the camera was, um, and the framing was really important for that. So, yeah, I guess because the film very much is an extension of our friendship and just over the years, we've had these conversations in so many different ways and in so many different contexts and like with things that I was going through personally, yeah, I, I, I feel like I just definitely wanted the film to be almost 
yeah, like a, a, a nod to the journey that I've been on with him. So at a certain point, it becomes like difficult to see or to, to decipher between just like what I'm attracted to with him as a friend and then with him as a contributor. But it's actually while we were in the interview, because I know that he's a great storyteller and that he, he does this for a living just in terms of like sharing his story and using it in diversity training and things like that. But when you get to know someone on a personal level and you've, you've done this for years, um, it's hard to, to see him as a contributor in a way. Like I didn't talk to him and start thinking, oh yeah, you'll be great on camera or you've got a great voice or you tell stories in a visual way. It's just like, we're just mates and we just talk about loads of deep and vulnerable things. And I knew he was ready to share his story and he wanted to share his story. And it's just like, it's it's just um, good fortune that he happens to be just this really great compelling <laughs> um, character as well. Did you ever consider having your own voice in there? So there was there was a kind of a back and forth, considering what you've just said there about, you know, being on the yeah. journey together. I, I feel like I, my voice is in there um, as a filmmaker, for sure. Sure. And how, like, I have, how I receive him. And it's interesting because the first time that he watched the film, one of the things that he said that stuck with me is that he said... Um, you really got me. You really captured me. Right. Like he feels like that is his authentic self on camera. He's being himself. I mean, it's, this is who he is. This is how he speaks. This is how animated he usually is. Like, yeah, just he, he feels that. Um, and so, yeah, in, in many ways, our friendship is captured in the film just for the very fact that he's talking to me and it's how I interpret his memories um, and bring that, bring them to life. I didn't feel like my voice, um, just to answer your question, necessarily needed to be in there just because I was really deeply trying to lean into the fact that this is one person's story. Um, and yeah, it, it was more about bringing his story to life than kind of me taking up space in that way. Yeah, looking at, at, at your sort of body of work previously, I think this is, you know, it's definitely a sort of, not it's not a culmination, obviously, but you know, it's a, a sort of development of the themes that, that you can see in previous work. And you know the voice is definitely there in the in in the way that you present the the material without a shadow of it. It's just interesting, you know. Where, where some documentary filmmakers like to have their own voice in there, so it's just a it, it's an interesting to hear that 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 choice for sure. I mean, in terms, one of the things that that's really interesting is the um, the use of reconstruction, which. You know, I, I don't know if you, uh, I don't, don't know if you remember this back in the day, but it always reminds me of Crime Watch, which is ironic, really. You know, the reconstructions of, you know, oh, this is how this crime happened. But it seems to be something now that uh, has been taken up a lot more as a, a as a form. And I think, you know, especially that moment where the young G has the encounter with the police officer, obviously, sort of. Uh, uses the racial epithet very directly and the way that the the voice cuts in and the use of music within that is really is really really um, effective but then obviously you've got the quote-unquote found footage or home video footage and then news footage all all of these things fitting together so yeah I mean I, I just wondered about that for you that sense of reconstruction and what it what it brings to the table as a you know as part of the the documentary process um, yeah, I mean, G in this film is talking about experiences that span literally decades, like from the 60s and to the early noughties. Um, and so it was really important to um, 
yeah, again, try to make it feel as present and, and immediate as possible. Um, and some of the experiences that he's had when he's telling them, it's just so visual that I don't feel like archive or home footage in and of itself would have done the stories justice. So, yeah, quite early on, I just knew that dramatic recon would be needed just in terms of really, truly bringing this experience to life. And and I guess for me, it was really important for audiences not to just be passive in it. Like I, I wanted um, audiences to feel like this, these experiences are happening to them. So there's point of view shots um, that we used that were really intentional of just like echoing home that this is everyone's story. Like this, this even though this is told through um, the prism of race and sexuality, like this is everyone's story. Everyone has memories of being told um, or just receiving some form of message that they weren't good enough. Um, and so even if you can't relate to being called the N-word or whatever, um, it was just the thing of making it feel like, yeah, triggering almost memories of personal experiences audiences might have had that, that um, yeah, they, they might want to meditate on and, and find resolution with. So, yeah, I, I think dramatic recon really helps to elevate um, the storytelling and, and bring it to life for sure. Yeah, it's it, it's something that's gotten kind of like a I don't know a renaissance or a new sense of uh, kudos. I think not not that you know it's just something that were, that wasn't sort of used as much. I don't think previously in in sort of uh, broader mainstream. But I think you see it a, an awful lot more and 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 in shorts as well. Um, so it's yeah, it's just a, a, an interesting sort of cycle of that. I think at the at the moment, but it's used really well um, here because it it ties in, doesn't it, with the the texture of some of the archive footage and that sort of sepia tone yeah. which is really nice oh thank you yeah I definitely um sat down with the color grader um and just did a lot of work just looking at each kind of reconstruction and where it sits um in time and also in relation to the archive um that is around it in the film and just trying to match it yeah so it's it's nice to hear that it was kind of uh, seen in that way and I do think yeah recon I think Netflix has had a lot, a big part yeah. to play in, in that, yeah. Um, and For opening sure. up to doctors. Um, I think sometimes I feel like audiences um, kind of prefer drama or, or feeling like there's an element of escapism in watching actors um, do something, you know, uh, bring something to life. Um, and I'm glad that we're in a space where, you know, we can play with form and lean into whatever storytelling devices yeah makes sense for the story and and yeah it was, this is my first time doing dramatic recon um and I look forward to the next time because I think it was it was a really interesting exploration and there's moments in it like for example the, the face painting scene for that was of course they're all actors but they're still real people that came into the room and had to engage with this really difficult situation um, and there could have been a film made about that in and of itself. Like, I, I was so gutted that we didn't film behind the scenes on that particular day because the conversations that came out of it um, were, were just so interesting. Um, and and it's experiences like that that I just wouldn't have had if the whole kind of way of telling stories as a doc maker hasn't been opened up and broadened. And um, it's an exciting space. It's an exciting space for sure. Yeah, I mean, there was definitely a sort of 
element of this documentary that really hit home with me in terms of the way that masculinity is constructed in male groups you know what I mean it's this which obviously would be a tangential thing for this documentary but it really sort of some of his experiences just being a sort of man in a male environment was really and, and that intersects with race obviously um, specifically for for G but yeah fascinating uh, fascinating stuff how did you feel about this coming out at this point in time when, you know, we just had a, a police commissioner replaced for ostensibly not taking seriously or ignore, acknowledging institutional racism as part of the reason why she was removed. It just seems like there is a lot of visibility, a lot more visibility of, of these kinds of issues, but still so much, so, so long, you know, so much further to go. Yeah. Really. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, it took a long time for this project to be commissioned and we've kind of explored loads of different routes and it was really frustrating. And it's just the, the challenge of just feeling so deeply that this is such an important story. And because I belong to a lot of the communities that G belongs to, it's hard for it not to feel personal when you're told that, when you're told no so many times, it's like, why can't people acknowledge or what, what is missing here? Like, why can't, they see why this is important. But with that being said, if it was made five years ago, I don't think it would have resonated in the way that it's resonating now. And, you know, the the recent events in the Met, it's just, yeah, sheer timing. Because the film came out, I think, two or three weeks before before this, but it very much speaks to the experiences and the, the landscape of present. It was interesting, I saw some comments about it um, from people saying things like, you know, this happened decades ago, the police has changed, um, yeah, why yeah, is he yeah. bringing this up now? Like, just get over it kind of thing. Um, and so, yeah, when, when this report came out, it was just, it, it was it was very, very interesting timing. And it speaks to just what we've been talking about in terms of banter, this whole, like, culture of hiding things behind humour. And it's it's supposed to be okay because of that. And just the, the dark underbelly of that, um, because so much goes unchecked and unaddressed because it's a joke, you know? Um, and, and, and we see that that culture is still very much alive, well and kicking in the Met today. And it's one thing if it was a joke in isolation or whatever, and that would still be wrong and it would still be, you know, bad. But this is like, it mirrors a relationship with, communities that the police engage with and have difficult and damaging relationships with and so it's, it's hard for us to just look at this and see it as you know a few silly comments between a few mates like it's not it actually reflects a much bigger picture and there's a reason why they felt so comfortable um to to, to say these things so yeah it's interesting timing and I think things always happen in the right time and if the film was commissioned when we first started pitching it we wouldn't be in this space now, for sure. Um, and I'm glad that people are better able to kind of connect with and receive the messages in the film. Yeah, I think banter is uh, one of the most toxic words in the English language, really, right. <laughs> in many ways. Mm. We've talked a lot about, you know, identity in, in kind of specific senses when it comes to kind of race and, and sexuality and, and that kind of thing. But for, for yourself as a creative identity, do you 
do you see yourself as a sort of filmmaker activist or is that you know is that too trite a way to sort of describe what you do and what your feelings about your own work are in terms of the 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 films of art as artifacts but then you know the themes that you're interested in pursuing it's a hard one i do in in many ways like identify as an art activist um and then also like i feel like these are just lived experiences that I, I feel deserve, um, you know, d- deserve to be captured, deserve to be shared. And I, I think that it's it's activism, but it's also kind of like spiritual work in trying to kind of um, elevate consciousness and create a space for people to feel seen. Um, so, and, and that is a form of activism as well, to be fair. I, I think that... Um, when I was going through the archive to make the film, I was struck by the way communities were documented at the time and how, you, you know, there's, there's a soundbite in the film where you can hear a journalist saying that um, the promiscuous lifestyle of the homosexuals, you know, ha- hadn't ceased amidst, yeah, the, uh, the AIDS pandemic. And how that was said just so matter-of-factly, like it was just, and this is a journalist on, you know, um, terrestrial TV saying this, like that the promiscuous lifestyle of the homosexuals, like it's just fact. And there were so many moments like that when I was going through archive and just thinking, wow, this is absolutely striking that these things were said. And to an audience that might not have any form of proximity to particular communities, that would just be received as fact. It's just like, okay, cool. Yeah, they're all promiscuous. Yeah, like... This is on, I'm not going to say whatever platform it is, but this this is on a, a credible platform. So this must be fact. I, I think there's not enough um, acknowledgement of how these um, statements have shaped culture and shaped how communities are treated because they heard it on X platform by X journalist. Out on the streets, there are ample signs that even fear of the disease has not put a stop to the promiscuous lifestyle enjoyed by many homosexuals. <laughs> They are arresting large numbers of gay men for alleged sexual offences. There are certain sections of the community who um, consider that homosexuals should not be, should not be. The attacks on gay men are continuing. Their anger could lead them to protect themselves. In my private life, I was hiding my sexual orientation. Uh, I was dealing with those questions of people saying, why aren't you married yet? I had pictures in my wallet of a wife and child. I didn't know who they were, but I would say that they're my ex-wife. As as I called her the bitch, who had taken my kid and gone to America and separated. It was going about adding another brick or another layer of defense to that facade. For me, who tells stories and what stories we tell and how we tell them is political um, because we're able to shift a perspective um, and, and shift the power balance in many ways and provide a platform for people to tell stories for themselves instead of being um, told in a voyeuristic way and, and told in a way that feels exploitative. So just by virtue of capturing someone's story and sharing it, um, particularly if it's a story that hasn't been told or is is told in some way, shape or form, but feels like it's been misrepresented, um, that is political. Um, but I'm not always consciously doing it in a political way, but it is a political thing to do. 
yeah. that's really interesting on that in terms of thinking about you know where the kind of work that you do sits in relation to it being television or cinematic or the internet and also sort of working say for example within the context of the BBC which is obviously celebrating a sort of 100 year anniversary and it gets accused of a lot from the left and and the right i mean right. <laughs> it's it's an interesting one i mean where do you think the role of the BBC sits in sort of amplifying those those voices you know bearing in mind i know that you've done work you know, un- under the umbrella of the, of the BBC, do you think still think that that sort of national broadcaster has a very clear, should have a clear mandate in terms of, of what it does, it, you know, even in this era where, you know, th- there are so many channels now where people get their entertainment information and so on? I mean, yeah, BBC or BBC One or is the nation's obviously flagship channel. And just with that, there's a certain amount of responsibility Um and the certain kudos that it holds. And with that, I think it needs to be used in the way that genuinely serves um, all audiences. I understand that they may be in a tricky position of, you know, having this responsibility. Um, and, and it's not just this thing of like an airy fairy responsibility of do good in, like we're literally all paying for this. So we should all be seen, like we should all be able to mm. go onto the platform and see ourselves and feel like our stories are being told in authentic um, ways. And also we should all have um, the opportunity to tell stories as well. Like if that's something we want to do, it shouldn't be left for people who belong to whatever it is community um, to tell those stories. We should all have access to that. But it's particularly, that's that's important generally, but particularly for the BBC, because we're all paying for it. So I think there is a responsibility there, but in equal measure, I'm glad that it's not just down to the BBC anymore. Like, I'm glad that there's so many other avenues for us to tell our stories. And for me, I'm most interested in connecting with audiences where they are. I think that sometimes with these platforms, um, there's that kind of thing of wanting to serve broad audiences and to them broad audiences is your average white person. That's, that's what it means. Like, who is majority? Yeah. yeah, yeah, the one show viewer or something. <laughs> right, yeah. So it's like, I mean, I've worked in some of these departments at, at, at the BBC and it's been a thing of like, okay, you're telling this story that's diverse, but we want this one show viewer to be able to watch it and understand it and connect with it and and that sometimes means watering down the message. That sometimes means not telling an authentic story because you're you're talking about a specific community, but it's for the entertainment of a, a separate community. Um, and I've always felt like if there's things in this that people don't understand, I'm okay with. Like, we all have access to Google. Like, we, we can all find out for ourselves. Um, but, but that just doesn't always um, come into practice. So... Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that the BBC should be doing a lot more. I, I think everybody has loads of opinions about what the BBC should, should be doing. And I'm just one of many voices in, in this kind of stream of consciousness. But I'm I'm so glad and I'm, I feel so, so fortunate that I live and I'm alive in this era because there's generations and generations of black and queer and working class and people with disabilities and just all other people who have been marginalised who did not have any other avenue and so left the industry or didn't even get into the industry to begin with, you know? So yeah, I'm, 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 I don't take that for granted at all that I have this opportunity. And having watched one of your, um, the BBC stories um, 
short that you did or half an hour um, feature on on called uh, Too Gay for God, which is, you know, a really interesting piece of work. And also it just made me think about, you know, having to, you know, a, a, a filmmaker in your position making something that may receive criticism from certain groups you know what i mean how do you deal with this era that we're in now where i mean i don't know how much you how much you agree with the sense that that you know we're in this in this culture where people are jumped to a fence rather more quickly than they used to i mean do you as an as a sort of filmmaker or artist do you have to just put that to the back of your mind or is there always that sort of anxiousness and maybe even an element of self-censoring that 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 can occur yeah, I guess there there is. I think the self censoring kind of comes from working within structures that censor you. Like what for? That's where it's been for me anyway. Because I know what I want to say, and I know the audiences that I'm talking to directly. I want to make work that everyone can access and engage with, and there's always kind of that thread of focusing on emotion, so anyone can watch it and feel like they can relate to it in some way, shape, or form, and take something from it in some way, shape, or form. But primarily, like my work is directed at marginalised communities and communities that don't often get to see themselves. Um, so I'm, I'm not concerned about people who don't belong to those communities and who might have um, issues with it. Like, that's to- I'm totally fine with that. Um, there's, there is no film that everybody loves, you know. There's, there's always going to be some form of, um, yeah, offence that people take, and, and I'm totally cool with that, you know. But if, if it's people who actually belong to the communities that you know, I'm, I'm trying to represent, that's a totally different conversation because that's, that's something that I would want to kind of, um, yeah, get gain a deeper understanding of and see what I can take from it and see what I might say, okay, fair enough, you feel that way, I don't. But, yeah, I'm glad to know how you feel. Um, but, yeah, to be honest, it's not um, something that I think about too, too deeply. With The Black Heart, of course, there's loads of communities being represented in that film, uh, so there's the pressure sometimes of representing marginalised communities and just wanting people to know um, that G isn't speaking for every black person or he's not speaking for every black police officer or every gay person. Like That is very much just one individual story. There's that pressure and there was the... I had nervousness about people receiving it and just possible backlash that he might get. I was nervous about that. Um, uh, yeah, that there was a huge responsibility there. But outside of that, um, yeah, like I'm, I'm, I know who I'm making my work for. Well, Cherish, thanks so much for taking all this time to speak to me, and congratulations on the BAFTA nomination. I hope you win for what it's worth. Well, <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, you're working on. Have you, have you got a new project on the go now? I have. There, there's a few things in development, but there's one thing that. Um, yeah, I'm actively working on at the moment. Um, yeah, I can't say too too much about it at this. Point. No, no, no worries. <laughs> yeah. Is it is it broadly in the same kind of you know? Is it uh, broadly in the same thematic area, or is it going to be something completely different? Uh, it's in the same thematic area in the sense of it being about uh, a human journey and self acceptance um, and overcoming obstacles in that way so yeah it is in in the same space in that sense yeah well good luck with that and i really look forward to seeing uh, what you come up with next thank you so much thank you for having me and for engaging with the film in in a really um yeah meaningful way it makes such a difference speaking to an actual film lover about 
um, a project and yeah going into all the different avenues of telling the story so thank you oh, my pleasure my pleasure to talk to you So thank you very much to Cherish and the publicity uh, company and agent who I spoke to, to to set that up. As you said before, it really made me think about the kind of filmmaking that is being used to give voices and histories, I think, which is one of the things that I think is really important when you look at the, the work of Cherish and then what's been happening with Steve McQueen in terms of that that sense of there is a history here that is just invisible or has been and it's it needs to be it needs to be highlighted so neil what did you make of the of the film and and then the chat yeah so uh, as i sort of mentioned before i thought, I thought it was a really great conversation um really sort of fascinating to hear cherish talk about the film and their background and their relationship with g um and yeah i watched the film and i thought the film was was fantastic and it's interesting you mentioned steve mcqueen because i think at the start it was it definitely reminded of the red, the white, and the blue from the small act series, um, because how could it not? You know, there's not that many. But then, by the end, I sort of thought, oh, this is actually a really important companion to that. You know, it builds on that and it sits with that, rather than just not that it shouldn't cover the same ground because there are a lot of stories that need to be told. But but it kind of it locates it within the same universe and then takes it somewhere else, which I think was really was really fascinating. Yeah, it was, it was really interesting that you brought up the close-ups in the interview because I felt that it was such a powerful way of of kind of accessing the story, particularly because it, I think it, there was sort of a payoff in the middle where G is t- talking about the breakdown that came from kind of, you know, basically suppressing two identities for his whole life and career. The way he sort of relates that through his face and sort of moves his face to sort of convey the breakdown is so powerful in that close up that you just feel it you know and you just you just it's it's just a really really powerful moment and yeah it's it's amazing how much you feel like you know this person from such a short amount of time and because so much of it is focused on the intimacy of the close up i just thought that was really really important in terms of the filmmaking um before sort of moving into the interview stuff i think one of the things that kind of struck me was kind of an incredible that the film ends the way it does and what i loved about it was that there's still so many things that are ambiguous or that that feel conflicting when you finish the film because they are you know so g's in diversity training sessions for the police you know willingly going back into the force doesn't disavow the force as an entity you know he hasn't become someone who wants to defund the police or he's engaged still engaged with the system um, and able to find a way back in, which I just think is 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 kind of fascinating, given what he had to endure, you know, which I think is I enjoyed that, and I thought that was really important rather than trying to tell a longer story which would have covered all the bases and then left that kind of human complexity out. you know, I think keeping keeping it short reminds us that this is not a, it's not a simple tale of he was destroyed by a system and a stepped away. And the other thing, which I think was really great, which was the reconstructions, was that we got to see him as a as a Muslim, you know, in terms of his family context. But that was also not part of the story, this story. You know, it's part of his story, but the use of the reconstructions, rather than just keeping it on the talking heads, allowed us to, again, feel 
a deeper layer that was cinematic because it's showing us something that but not telling us and, and, and allowing us to to try and imagine and conceive of the further stresses the further issues the further challenges that he would have faced as a person just by seeing these images um, of him wearing a Muslim dress in the street and I thought that was just that was great because I I am kind of fed up of everyone wanting to know everything about everything all the time in films like all the criticisms are like well I don't know this or there wasn't a scene where this character said this or where this was explained and it's like let me sit with it you know <laughs> let me sit with the complexity of it and I think it did a remarkable job in 25 minutes of of conveying all of that. And then the thing I wanted to mention sort of just to to finish up this was 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 about those reconstructions and the striking idea that that Cherish talked about where they were saying that they they're almost become escapism in documentary and you both sort of had that conversation which I thought was such a fascinating way of doing it of bringing in this almost narrative well very much a narrative representation of of someone's lived experience as a way of moving out of that kind of discomfort into a different kind of space and I thought that was that was really interesting to conceive of it that way as a chance to to narrativize and use the power of narrative storytelling to convey stuff which I've, I've kind of thought about that but never really in those terms as a kind of as an escapist as a chance to step outside of the so yeah I thought it was a really I think it's a great piece of work and a fascinating chat Great, great. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think just to sort of pick up on on some of the points there, the that sense of him going back in to do the diversity training again, which is such a political hot potato in and of itself, anyway. You know what I mean? You'd be forgiven if the guy just went, you know what? I'm just going to go retire and 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 uh, do whatever, you know. But yeah, even even going back now, I, I can imagine he he has to face not just resistance that may be based on, you know, a specific um, assumptions about him or who he is, or, you know, even sort of overt racism that may, that may come up. But, but, but that sense of what's the point of diversity training and it's just causes more, more polarization, you know, and this sort of the way that it gets placed now into, into that sense of it, do, it doesn't work to keep going o- over and over these things. And it's such a, oh my God, it's, it's such a, a difficult one because that that very easily becomes shutting down you know sorry i don't want to talk about it i don't want i don't want to hear your voice which is the whole point of like i say articulating voices or or showing histories and 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 also sort of just problematizing again we talk about we've talked about it a lot on in in relationship to film generally sort of po- problematizing the narrative or the canon or the discourse that that is accepted and more and more i think we are being polarized into people who who do accept that that history is discursive and has been told in a certain way from ostensibly usually a white straight perspective and then those who th- those who want to keep that in place and suggest that that's just that's just fact that's just history do you know what i mean and this is where we're as a society i think and as a as a world sort of struggling with the idea of of information and knowledge and how that relates to our subjective experiences and it's kind of like you know because it it is we do go down these paths don't we where it's like my truth is my truth and there is there is a sort of issue i think in terms of things like things like documentary forms in in producing that but i think the way that cherish kind of harnesses that in a way that with the form and the theme 
is accepting of the fact that here is somebody who's gone through particular experiences and is finding ways to articulate a sense of their own self, which is still obviously still in progress all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. And and, and he is a reminder and the film is a reminder of the kind of the complexities of class and family, you know, and an awareness that it's not just that the, the, the you know, there are issues with the police that need to be resolved through massive restructuring and you sort of you know reculture a reculturation or if that's even a word but that it kind of it, it moves us past this kind of idea that is quite that we're not still a country where people in families or people in communities don't feel like they can be who they are or don't feel like that this is not you know that trying to join the police and and do that work for the is still not viable you know like the issues that police have, have historically responded badly to are still there they're not solved you know that it's not like the police is the only institution that's archaic and out of touch you know families are you know communities are like the, you know it's we're not a completely progressive liberal nation where everyone accepts everyone for who they are all the time you know and that seeing him do that work was for me was a reminder of yeah that he knows that he knows that there's going to be black people in the force and there's gay people in the force and as people struggling with other identities within the force who who need to see that, you know? And it's kind of amazing. And I think that the, the openness of the film and not being overly didactic about a point of view about the police as, a, as an entity <laughs> allows that complexity to sit within it, which I think is just... Yeah, again, in 25 minutes is, is hard to do, you know. It's it's interesting because it, Jerish was a filmmaker that I wasn't aware of and then your interview sort of alluded to their their body of work and I'm interested to see more because it and I, I I knew what you meant when you sort of were saying culmination not as in the end point but as in the work that they've done has built up to this point which feels like a really confident piece of work you know um, and I'm excited to see to see other stuff for sure fantastic well um, that will do for episode 138 thank you once again for your continued support please follow us on all the usual channels if you have the means then some support on Patreon for as little as £2 a month will really help out with our running costs anybody who joins Patreon gets access to all of our bonus content including our monthly newsletter Neil great to see you we'll speak again soon yep thanks for this episode great job thanks to Cherish and thanks to all our listeners Listeners. Catch you all soon. Thanks for listening.